0: the Jodcast, outside the government, beyond the University of Manchester, tracking down astronomical stories from the world of astrophysics, and arming the human race with knowledge for the future. The 21st century is when everything changes, and you've got to be
1: ready. The Jodcast.
0: Hmm, let me come up and play with your dish.
1: With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Megan Argo and David Alt, The Judcast May issue. Hi, Hello and welcome to this May issue of The Judcast. Joining us this month from Jodrell Bank, we've got Stuart. Hi Dave. From New Zealand, we have Nick. Hi guys, hi everyone. Our very special guest, John Barriman. Hi, this is John Barrowman, a.k.a. Captain Jack Harkness from Torchwood. Jodrell Bank, the Jodcast. Hmm,
0: let me come up and play with your dish.
1: No, not now, John. And calling very long distance from Chile, here's Tim. Hello.
2: So, Tim, what are you doing in Chile? Well, I'm out here with my research student, Neil Verte,
1: and we're here to do some observing. Well, Tim, if you stick around, we'll catch up with you later in the show. Now coming up on this issue of the JODcast, we find out about observations of gamma-ray bursts with Dr Carol Mundell of Liverpool John Moores University, we find out what's up in the May night sky with Ian Morrison, and we'll bring you a selection of the best astronomy websites out there on the interweb. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
3: In the news this month, Hubble celebrates its 17th birthday, planet found in the habitable zone of a nearby star, and AIM launches to shed light on noctilucent clouds. The Hubble Space Telescope celebrated its 17th birthday in April, with the release of a new image of star formation in the Carina Nebula. The telescope, a joint project of both the European and American space agencies ESA and NASA, has been making stunning images of the Universe since its launch in 1990. This new image is a mosaic of 48 individual exposures, made using the Advanced Camera for Surveys, or ACS, and shows the star formation going on in the nebula in stunning detail. The image covers an area of sky 50 light-years across, located in the constellation of Carina, the keel of the ship Argo Navis. The nebula contains huge clouds of gas within which new stars are forming, as well as a collection of massive stars between 50 and 100 times heavier than our own Sun. NASA recently approved the fourth and final servicing mission to the telescope, which will be used to replace batteries, gyroscopes, guidance sensors and instruments which have failed over the years, as well as install some new sensors. This upgrade will hopefully extend the lifetime of the telescope for several more years. Astronomers using a 3.6-metre telescope in Chile have discovered a planet just twice the diameter of the Earth, orbiting a star just over 20 light-years away. This exoplanet is the smallest found to date, and orbits its parent star in just 13 days. The astronomers who made the discovery calculated that this planet orbits within the so-called habitable zone of the star Gliese 581. This is the range of distances from a star where the surface temperature of a planet would be in the range where water could exist as a liquid on the surface. Too close to the star and any water would evaporate. Too far and it would freeze. Although it orbits 14 times closer to its star than the Earth is to our Sun, Gliese 581 is a red dwarf, only about one-third of the mass of the Sun, and about 50 times fainter, so is much cooler. This all means that its habitable zone is much closer to the star. The discovery was made using the HARPS instrument mounted on the European Southern Observatory's 3.6-metre telescope in Chile. On Wednesday the 25th of April, NASA's Aeronomy of Ice in the Mesosphere, or AIM, spacecraft, launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. This spacecraft is designed to study the strange phenomenon of noctilucent clouds, high-altitude cloud formations which can only be seen at night when they are illuminated by sunlight from below. Astronomers at high latitudes are often familiar with these cloud formations on the very edge of space, but their origin remains a mystery. They form in the mesosphere between 50 and 80 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, where the air is both very cold and very dry. Data suggests that these clouds are becoming more frequent and are being seen at lower altitudes than ever before, with some suggesting that this could be related either to dust impacting on the atmosphere from space, or possibly even global warming. The AIM mission will study these clouds over its two years of operations. Since they were first detected more than 100 years ago, the origin of the cosmic rays which constantly bombard the Earth has been something of a mystery. Cosmic rays are highly energetic particles, mainly protons, and detecting them requires a special kind of telescope. One such facility is the High Energy Spectroscopic System, or HESS, a group of four such telescopes located in Namibia. Sources of cosmic rays detected by HESS include pulsars, supernovae, the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way, and distant quasars. But the HESS collaboration have now discovered a new source of very high energy cosmic rays, associated with a young cluster of stars known as Westerlund 2, This region of the sky contains many massive stars in a very active region of star formation. What the Hess team suggests is that the supersonic winds of charged particles from these very massive and very hot young stars is creating massive amounts of turbulence in the plasma in the nebula, and this turbulence accelerates particles up to energies of over 1 tera electron volts. Another theory is that most of these particles are accelerated in the massive shock fronts which occur in isolated supernova explosions. The latest results from HESS appear to favour the first explanation, although more data is needed. Other new gamma-ray telescopes such as MAGIC and GLAST will hopefully help solve this mystery. And finally, the International Dark Sky Association has declared the Natural Bridges National Monument in Utah in the USA as the first international dark sky park. The park has spectacular natural scenery during daylight, but the area also has some of the darkest nighttime skies. The International Dark Sky Association challenged the park to improve the existing lighting, and the staff responded by replacing 80% of the park's lighting with full cut-off designs, which direct all of the light down to the ground where it is needed, rather than up into the sky where it is not.
1: Thanks, Megan.
2: Now, Dave, as our listeners probably have gathered, we were at the National Astronomy Meeting back in the middle of April. You were indeed. Yes, we had a great time. It was fun. Anyway, there's some people we should thank for helping us during the National Astronomy Meeting. And um, The main person is David Boyce, who was great and managed to go and do lots of interviews for us. There were two other people. There was Paul Steele and Neil Phillips, who also joined in on the presenting duties as well. And thanks to them.
0: And I'd just like to pass my thanks on to the University of Central Lancashire for allowing us to use their fantastic recording studio, which was quite fun. It was uh, certainly a treat to be recording inside a, uh, a nice padded room. And uh, I, Yeah,
2: we're normally in the back of a van.
0: Yeah, apparently we're in the back of a van, but <laughs> hopefully people will appreciate the, uh, the improved quality of Jodcast at NAM. And so our thanks go to the University of Central Lancashire for allowing us to use their padded room. Thanks indeed, yes. So we'd like to announce the winner from our survey. As you might remember, we asked everyone, all our listeners, to complete the survey on the Jodcast website. And for those of you who supplied an email address, we wrote those email addresses down. We put them into a hat. In fact, it was a Level Telescope hard hat. And a respectable Jodrell Bank observer withdrew the winning entry. And the winner is... John Cave of Merseyside in the UK. So congratulations, John Stewart. What does he win? He wins
2: an amazing Jodcast T-shirt. An amazing Jodcast T-shirt. Fantastic. It's
0: amazing. It's not geeky at all. So, John Cave, that T-shirt is going to you. Congratulations, and thanks to everybody who did fill in the survey. The feedback has been wonderful to receive. The comments have been largely uh, constructive, and we thank everyone for that. Now, we are acting on the suggestions that we've received from the survey. Uh, In one important way, Stuart, tell us about how we are changing the Jodcast in response to our listeners' comments.
2: Yeah, we had quite a few suggestions for this, this exact change. And it's basically people wanted us to be more frequent. And there were quite a few people who suggested that we split the Jodcast into two and have it twice monthly. And therefore, that's what we're going to try and do. Well, that's what we like to hear, is uh, people asking for more, 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 and uh, we will do our best. Um, so the, the new format, we're trying to split it down the middle. We're going to have the night sky segment at the start of the month. Which is good, because people need to know what's happening in the, in the month, for all of the month. Exactly. We're going to put the Ask an Astronomer segment on the mid-month show, mm-hmm. and we're going to have one interview on both. Right. And we'll have the news at the beginning of the month. Excellent. Okay, so it sounds like more astronomy for everyone. Fantastic. Yes, and it should hopefully make the file sizes of our downloads a bit smaller. So that'll be a bit nicer on everyone's net connections. Excellent. So it's
0: going to be the same total content, possibly more uh, than before,
1: which is hopefully going to satisfy our listeners. But for all of the survey forms that have been filled out, for all of the feedback that we've got, one thing that's still not happening is we're not being reviewed on iTunes. Uh, That's important. We need people to review us on iTunes. Quite right. Or, if you're into Web 2.0, what you can do is dig us. <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, don't worry. <laughs>
0: but, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, curious to know, is it easy to
1: review us on iTunes? How do people do this? Is it fairly straightforward? It couldn't be simpler. All you need to do, once you've subscribed to us in iTunes, click on the review button and give us five stars. Completely You don't straightforward.
2: have to give us five stars. <laughs>
1: But I think five stars. Well, we'd prefer it if yeah, you did. I, guess, I think five stars is it's an excellent job. <laughs> but yes, please do keep spreading the word about the Jodcast, and then we can continue to bring you the best astronomy news and interviews every month. Twice a month. And also,
0: we decided to make a CD-ROM of the best of the Jodcast programs in 2006. The idea of this was people can use the CD-ROM to interest themselves about astronomy without having to download the entire back catalogue of the Jodcast. Now, we're making this free to schools and other educational institutions, so if you think that uh, your local school, or perhaps university, could use a copy of the best of the Jodcast in 2006, then do send us a line, send us a message, tell us which school it's going to go to, and we will send you a copy. And it's a Good CD-ROM. It looks good in the CD collection, I think, Stuart, don't you? It does, yeah, I, but I'm biased.
1: I designed the cover. Well, there you go, then. <laughs> so, yes, that CD absolutely free to schools and contains all of the best interviews from 2006. But now, one of the best interviews from 2007, Dr. Karen Mundell talking about gamma-ray bursts. Over to you, Nick. Physicists
0: and astronomers like taking things to the extreme, because that's when our current understanding of physics and astronomy can break down, leading us to develop and improve our understanding of nature. This Jodcast interview is all about extreme physics.
4: What I'm talking about is um, the kind of conditions that you don't easily reproduce in a laboratory.
0: Dr. Carol Mundell, Principal Lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University, Royal Society University Research Fellow and RC UK Academic Fellow.
4: So the two particular kinds of objects in the universe that I'm interested in are gamma-ray bursts and active galactic nuclei. And the two things that they appear to have in common is that they're driven by black holes. In the case of gamma-ray bursts, these are black holes that are about the mass of our sun, but concentrated into probably an area, a volume about, you know, one mile across. Mm -hmm. Supermassive black holes are at the centres of most bulge-dominated galaxies, and even the Milky Way has its own black hole. But the supermassive black holes that I'm interested in are about 100 million solar solar masses. So big, beefy things compared to the black holes that, that fuel gamma-ray bursts. But what both of these kinds of objects have in common is that when you actually try to get matter close to a black hole, then the matter heats up and it shines very brightly. And it's the light from that shining material that we catch with our telescopes on Earth. And in fact, that's the only way we can probe the physics around these extreme objects. We can't fly our satellites or our our astronauts out to a supermassive black hole or a gamma-ray burst at the edge of the universe, but we catch the light and we use that light to disentangle the physics that are happening close to these these black hole objects.
0: So these two fields are connected by black holes. You're just looking at a different size of of black holes. So let's look at the first one. Let's look at uh, gamma-ray bursts coming from solar mass black holes, you say. Yes. What are these gamma ray bursts? Remind us what these things are.
4: Well, historically, they were discovered as flashes of gamma rays. And they're originally found by military satellites in the, 19, the end of the 1960s. And these military satellites were monitoring the, the sky, really, to find particularly the Russians who might be violating the nuclear test ban treaties. Mm. And so, of course, the, the discovery of these gamma ray flashes were classified for a number of years, while the Americans thought that they were the Russians detonating nuclear tests in their country. <laughs> They were then discovered to come actually from the sky and not be terrestrial sources of gamma-ray flashes. And so the first paper came out in 1973 announcing the discovery of these very short but intense pulses of gamma rays on the sky. So they flash and they're gone. They don't repeat themselves. Now, the problem in those days was that Nobody knew where these were to better than many degrees, and so traditional telescopes couldn't then point and find the light that comes at other wavelengths in addition to the gamma rays. It's a
0: good point, though, isn't it? This is not normal, well, when we say normal light, it's all part of the same electromagnetic spectrum but when we say gamma rays can you explain what uh, sort of energy levels we're talking about? They're here?
4: the very highest energy levels in the electromagnetic spectrum and they're up at um, well we measure these in terms of electron volts so x-rays are some about ki- kilo electron volts if you kill electron volts the gamma rays are up into mega electron volts and giga electron volts so you don't want to be standing in the way of a gamma ray when it comes through it's going to fry you basically but the earth's atmosphere protects us from astrophysical gamma rays luckily because we now know that the these gamma-ray bursts are actually occurring in the universe, you know, we tend to detect them with our satellites um, a few times a week, but there may be as many as one a day happening. Mm. And with the advent of um, satellites that were then flown, for example, most recently, the SWIFT satellite, which is a NASA satellite that was launched in 2004, specifically to catch these gamma-ray flashes on the sky, localize them very accurately, and send down their locations to ground-based telescopes instantly. So we don't have to wait a day or two by the time the light's faded away and we can't find them with our telescopes. Within seconds, we get a notification. And in fact, I get woken up in the middle of the night. My mobile phone will <laughs> buzz and tell me that a gamma ray burst has just been detected. And what we do at Liverpool is we have a suite of robotic telescopes um, on the island of La Palma and the Canary Islands in Hawaii and also in Australia. These are two-metre robotic telescopes, the world's largest robotic telescopes, and when a gamma-ray satellite sends down a signal to say, I found one of these gamma-ray flashes, it's at this part of the sky, and it has these properties, our telescopes immediately slew and point at that position and start to look at the optical light, so the lower energy light in the, the electromagnetic spectrum that we, our eyes are sensitive to. And we can then combine the knowledge that we have from that particular burst, how it looks in the gamma rays, then down into the X-rays, into the optical, the infrared light, and ultimately down into the radio regime. We put all of that together, and we also examine how the light varies with time to disentangle what actually occurred when this black hole, in the case of gamma ray bursts, it's the birth of a black hole as right. a massive star collapses so at the edge of the universe.
0: This is uh, the end of a star's life, or one possible end of a star's life. That's right. a gamma ray burst.
4: Exactly. So very massive stars, you know, maybe 100 or, or 200 solar masses. Out at high redshift, I mean, there have been a few nearby ones, I say not very nearby, certainly not in our own galaxy, uh, but we're looking at some of the most in, lum, instantaneously luminous events in the universe in gamma-ray bursts, and they are some of the highest redshift or the most distant objects that we've ever caught light from with our telescopes.
5: It seems
0: to be exactly that these things are the most or some of the most luminous objects at any given instant, more luminous than an entire galaxy, So, so we understand. How is this possible that one star, okay it's a very massive star certainly, how is it that it could contain that much energy, even just for a split second of time?
4: Well, this was one big dilemma that the astronomical community had to wrestle with when the energies were first being measured. And the critical point, really, is how you put that, that light energy out. So do you, do you emit the energy isotropically in the way that a light bulb does, so the light comes out in all directions? in which case the light that comes to the Earth is a small bit of that, and when you calculate the total amount of energy that comes from this object, it seems unphysically large alternatively, if you actually beam that energy and focus it into a small opening angle, the way a torch works, then the energy constraints become a little less extreme. The most extreme example that we, we've ever seen was a burst that happened in 1999, a gamma ray burst called 990123. It happened on the 23rd of January in 1999. Mm-hmm. And this thing reached nearly ninth magnitude um, in the, the visual band. So you could have seen it with, the, the, with binoculars if you looked at the right part of the sky. Wow. And the amount of energy that was inferred there was the rest mass energy of a neutron star had been emitted in just 80 seconds.
0: When you say the risk mass of a neutron star, what do you mean by that?
4: If you take the the, the mass of a, an entire neutron star and you convert that straight into energy using Einstein's equals mc squared equation, then the, the amount of energy that we, we detected at the Earth was equivalent if you convert it back into mass um, to an entire neutron star being vaporized. Does that, that suggest actually
0: that's what happened, an entire neutron star got turned into energy, and that's what we saw as the gamma ray burst.
4: No, what we now understand is that the energy was actually focused into a, a torch-like beam. And that then means that no, and, and a whole neutron star did not have to die in 80 seconds <laughs> for us to catch the light at, at, the, at the Earth. And instead, what we now understand is that there are very, very high ultra relativistic, so very close to the speed of light, um, jets that get spewed out from these these objects. I mean, these are sp- massive spinning stars. And as they cause collapse, they then shoot out these these jets of um, plasma. And the light comes from the plasma, but of course the light that we see is enhanced by the fact that it's moving so close to the speed of light it gets an extra boost. It's called a, a Doppler boost. Right. And we actually see something that's that's then very bright because the torch is pointing right directly at us. And obviously if the torch is pointing away, we don't see anything. And so there are probably many gamma ray bursts happening in the universe that we don't catch because mm. they just don't happen to be pointing directly so at us.
0: The beams us. aren't pointing towards us. Exactly. Well, why is the plasma emitted from these collapse events? Why are they? Why are these beams beamed. Why are they focused into these beams?
4: Well this is one of the, the big unsolved questions in astrophysics really as to what launches these beams or these jets of material, be it in gamma ray bursts or active galactic nuclei like quasars which of course they eject their plasma over much larger physical scales and radio astronomers for, ma- for many decades now have been making exquisite radio images using facilities like Merlin to actually image the radio plasma as it moves out from the centres of these supermassive black holes. And so there's a whole range of different kind of jets in the universe, both in our own galaxy coming from smaller stars and also right through into gamma ray bursts and AGN. And some of the theories around how these, these jets get get formed are to do with magnetic fields at the centres of the objects. And if you, have, um, if you think of magnetic fields as threads through the plasma and obviously you have a spinning object and it starts to get twisted up, then maybe mm. you make a funnel. And you have to balance energy. So if something is collapsing and it's also spinning and getting faster then, and heating up, then that energy has to come out somewhere. And so there are various different theories, none of which have been conclusively proven yet as to how the central engines of these very energetic objects work. That's one of the big questions. What are the progenitors and what ultimately drives the central engine that squishes out this material at such extreme speeds?
0: All right. One question, though. Neutron stars, we like to think, are fairly stable objects. Once they become a star collapses and becomes a neutron star, doesn't it just stay a neutron star? Why does a neutron star decide it wants to become a black hole and thereby emit lots of radiation as a gamma-ray burst?
4: Well, I think... What pushes it, it over the edge? Yeah, there are two issues here. I mean, one, obviously, is if you, if you squeeze an awful lot of mass into a very small volume, you get to the stage where um, you... well, a thing called de- degenerate pressure. Um, you, if you can no longer keep a neutron soup going. Um, The black holes are actually much more massive um, in a much smaller volume than neutron stars. If you have enough material that collapses down, um, you get to a critical mass. Um, And that material, although the black hole is commonly thought of in popular you know scientific well popular imagination as a great cosmic vacuum cleaner in fact it's not it's a dense object um, that just happens to have such a strong gravitational attraction that not even light can escape so it's not an exotic object in that sense it's just more massive and more concentrated than a neutron star For gamma-ray bursts, there's currently a debate going on as to whether they have neutron stars or black holes at their heart, or whether some gamma-ray bursts may be an object called magnetars, so neutron stars that are nice and stable, but have very strong, well-ordered magnetic fields, and the energy is then extracted from the magnetic fields to drive these outbursts, or whether you really do need a black hole at the centre as the the, the powerhouse, if you like, for these explosions. And that's something that we're, we're still currently investigating and trying to understand which Or both, maybe, lie at the heart of gamma ray bursts.
0: Lots to learn. So, what you mentioned before that you have uh, a selection of robotic telescopes reacting automatically to these uh, signals from the the space telescopes or where do you come in you you mentioned you get woken up at night by the universe going bang (laughs) What, what actually happens
4: well indeed the robotic telescopes do work completely automatically so the signal comes directly from the satellite into the telescope the telescope interrupts what it's doing immediately at that point and goes straight to the gamma ray burst so in principle if i slept through my buzzing telephone it wouldn't be you know the end of the world the telescope would do its job and in fact we have a whole suite of sophisticated software that we've designed and implemented on these telescopes so that we take our optical images of the sky we analyze them we reduce them the software goes in and finds all of the known stars in the field and it looks for a new object
3: Hmm. if it
4: finds a new object it says ah i think this might be the gamma-ray burst afterglow the optical counterpart to the the gamma-ray flash itself And is it fading? And then it compares images and sees whether the object's actually fading. And then I have a very nice little automatic email that I receive in my my email inbox saying, I think I've found your optical transient. It's at this position. It's at this pixel location. It has this brightness. It may be fading at this rate. And here's the light curve that I'm growing of it. So, in fact, our telescopes do all this for us. But where the humans really come in, Obviously, we can't be fast enough. There's no way that I can wake up in the middle of the night and within a minute or two make an intelligent decision as to what needs to be done with the telescopes, and that's why it's all fully automated. But as the the first hour after the burst proceeds, you have a good idea about the properties of the optical object that you found. Sometimes we find nothing at all. We have an upper limit, and in Mm -hmm. which case it might be bright in the infrared, it might be a very high redshift, and therefore we won't see it in the optical. But I then have to take the images and add them together and dig a bit deeper, which is not something we ask the telescope to do in real time. Alternatively, it might have found something very bright that may be real. I check the images to make sure it's not just a bright star in the field, that it's not some kind of aberration. 99% of the time, it's, it's a real afterglow that we found, probably better than 99% of the time. And obviously, the email that I get from the telescope helps me to make a decision faster And in, in the middle of the night, my stupefied half-asleep <laughs> state. Um, I then see the location of it, how bright it is, what its properties are, and it's then my job to send a circular to approximately 900 to 1,000 astronomers around the world saying this is what we found, these are its properties, this is where it is. And you then have a number of other teams around the world who are also following up with their own telescopes, some of of them robotics, some of them... Traditional Mm -hmm. people then start to take spectra of these objects to try to find out what their redshift is, to see what elements might be associated close to the the burst, where the material that's around the burst, and the programs to then continue to monitor how these objects fade across the electromagnetic spectrum can then kick in, where it's not so critical to get on within the first few minutes, but Mm -hmm. the next hour or the next few days might be very important. So the humans really make the strategic science decisions based on the properties that the robotic telescopes are telling us these bursts have. and we do a little bit of a sanity check. But as I say, mostly the, the telescope's better than I am. Yes. And the software's <laughs> cleverer than I am in the middle the of telescope's
0: time. faster than you are, let's say. It's faster Certainly, to react. Yes. Yes. So it sounds like these things, these burst events, are over very, very quickly. If you need a telescope to react to them automatically, and you've got a whole suite of people around the world ready with their telescopes to watch it as it, as it fades, how long does it take for one of these burst events to be over, if it ever is over?
4: Well, um, it depends at what part of the electromagnetic spectrum you look. So there are two kinds of gamma-ray bursts. There are the so-called long bursts, which we define to be flashes of gamma rays that last for longer than two seconds. There are short bursts, which last less than two seconds and can be as short as tens of milliseconds. The long bursts may go on for many tens, many hundreds, many thousands of seconds in the gamma rays, maybe up to a thousand seconds, rarely more than that. That initial flash of gamma rays is produced in part of what we call the central engine. So in technical terms, it's internal shocks in the flow that produce the gamma ray emission. So very fast shells of plasma that catch one another up in the flow, a bit like racing car drivers overtaking one another but crashing as they do so. Mm. And it's, that's where we think the gamma ray flashes come from. Once these shells then meet the circumstellar material, so the material that is around the star, or maybe the, the, the outer layers of the star itself, we then have what's called an external shock, and this, is, this produces the afterglow. So the X-ray, the optical, the infrared, the radio emission, the so-called afterglow. So these are the dying embers, the fading, um, fading source that we see associated with the gamma-ray flash. And some of these objects can fade very quickly. So, for example, the burst that I mentioned that happened in 1999, that had already faded something like by five optical magnitudes in ten minutes. So their speed is of the essence. Otherwise, you don't, it's very bright to begin with, but then you don't actually catch it if you're not there soon enough and therefore you, you never know how bright it was. Mm-hmm. But the afterglows can go on for many days and weeks if your telescopes are sensitive enough to catch the fading light. So in some ways, they're over very quickly if you're catching the gamma rays. And if you want to really get a full picture of the physics that are happening, you want to catch light from across the electromagnetic spectrum as soon as possible, but also for as long as the object is, is technically visible with your telescopes. So what we're now doing is monitoring from the, the, the early first few seconds right up to as many days after the burst as we can actually see the object and see when it finally fails. And that's
0: continuous. The first few seconds for several days
4: it's as continuous as we can possibly make it and the reason for having more than one robotic telescope is to improve that continuity so obviously if we catch a burst on the island of la palma with the liverpool telescope then the source sets or the sun rises at la palma we can't continue to monitor it it's no longer nighttime in la palma but it's then nighttime in hawaii Mm. and so we do have campaigns where we then hand over to the hawaii telescope and it can continue to monitor by the time it's finished if the Bright, the brightness of the burst is still sufficient to use a 2-metre telescope to see it, we can then hand back to La Palma. Right. And we have larger telescopes that we have time on, for example, the 4-metre William Herschel telescope on La Palma, and also the larger 8-metre Gemini and, and VLT telescopes. And so we're able to hand over between these different telescopes, and with collaboration with different teams, we're able to monitor these these light curves as long as we possibly can continuously.
0: We mentioned that we, there may be more gamma ray bursts going off in the universe, But we don't see all of them because not all of them are beamed towards us. But are we monitoring all of those gamma-ray bursts? Are we detecting all those gamma-ray bursts that do have their beams pointed towards us? Or don't we know? Uh, I guess I'm asking, how efficient is the SWIFT satellite? This one, the satellite, which is giving us all these alerts and warnings.
4: Yeah there are two reasons why you would not catch bursts so obviously there's the one you mentioned where if they're not beamed towards us they don't flash in the gamma rays and therefore by definition they are not a gamma ray burst in terms of an observational astronomer being able to see them therefore we Forget those. So there's a large majority of them, probably, Mm -hmm. if you believe in the beaming model and then calculate how many are not beamed towards us. In terms of the ones that we should catch with the SWIFT satellite, this has certainly been a a learning process for SWIFT instrument scientists. And obviously, when you fly a mission like SWIFT, the first thing you do is you you understand in your laboratory how sensitive your detectors are, and they use what's called a a partial-coded mask to catch the gamma rays. And this gives them a good view of the sky with also some directional information. But obviously you don't want to have many, many false positives because that's very expensive in terms of other people's telescope time.
0: Waking you up in the middle of the night, for instance. Exactly, Hmm. and telling
4: our robotic telescopes to follow up fake sources. And so the SWIFT team has worked very hard over the last two years to get the thresholds optimised. So obviously you start off being fairly conservative and you have some quite high thresholds and saying, well, there are lots of known sources that produce gamma-ray bursts. So there's been a learning process in terms of building up a catalogue of known objects. Um, There's also a phenomenon called the South Atlantic Anomaly, where Swift actually comes in and out of a zone where it can't point at the sky due to problems with the the sun could produce um, problems in the detectors. Mm. And as they come in and out of that, obviously, you can get these flashes of gamma rays in, in the detector. And they're not real sources either. So they've worked very hard to, because this is all fully automatic on Swift as well, you have to remember that it's not a human who's saying, well, that's not a real gamma-ray flash, that is a real gamma-ray flash. And so they've worked very hard to get an optimal balance between how sensitive they are in terms of triggering on real gamma-ray bursts without missing many of them, Mm. um, but also not having too many false positives. And so we, we do see that there's, Obviously, there are lots of gamma-ray bursts that in the optical we can't follow up because it may be cloudy at the telescope, it may be raining. And so there's, there are actually many more gamma-ray bursts that have gamma-ray data than may have um, optical data. And similarly, the X-ray instruments on board SWIFT, because SWIFT has a, a gamma-ray detector, also an X-ray telescope and a small ultraviolet optical telescope. Mm-hmm. And so if the SWIFT satellite is able to see that part of the sky, it's able to get simultaneous gamma-ray X-ray optical. But it may be that it's caught a gamma-ray flash. It's about to be to be occulted, and so it might be another 20 or 30 minutes before it can then start to look for the X-rays and the optical light. So there's always you know, something subtle about a small fraction of the bursts, Um, But one thing that the the SWIFT satellite has discovered, they're starting to find bursts at higher redshift than previous gamma-ray satellite missions, such as, for example, the Compton Gamma-ray Observatory and the the um, Dutch-Italian beppo Sachs satellite found. And so they're actually finding slightly higher redshift objects that are fainter and so we are apparently probing a different a slightly different kind of gamma ray burst. So we're finding a new population out there. Why is
0: that? Is it because Swift is more sensitive or it's a better instrument?
4: SWIFT is more sensitive in the, the softer gamma ray bands. And this year, there's also a, a harder gamma-ray or a higher-energy gamma-ray satellite called GLASS that will be launched, which again may probe a different kind of um, gamma-ray burst. Because really, what, again, what you need to do is not only sample the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum, but sample all the gamma-ray regime as well, because mm. that's quite a, a broad band within the electromagnetic spectrum. And so you're catching bursts that have a, a range of different kind of gamma-ray properties, and really, hopefully, we'll have a full census then of these kinds of objects.
6: Right.
1: Thank you very much for talking to us. You're
4: very welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Nick. And you can hear the rest of that interview with Dr. Karen Mundell, where she's talking about active collecting nuclei, in the May Extra Show, which will be going out in the middle of the month. Now, if you remember, Tim is still on the line from South America. Tim, remind us why you're in Chile.
5: Well, I'm out here with my research student, Neil Verte, uh, and we're here to use the 3.6 metre. NTT New Technology Telescope in Lasia. Oh, one of those guess, amazing acronyms. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a mistake to use the, acron- the, the word "new" in an acronym, I suppose, because actually it was built about 25 years ago now. So, um, but it's actually it's a, a 3.6 meter optical telescope. So it has a mirror that's 3.6 meters in diameter, um, and it's it's sort of new technology because it has things like it was designed specially to try and get really good um, seeing. You know, to sort of cut down the effects of uh, turbulence in the atmosphere. So it's got a, it's got a really weird dome. Um, you can imagine it's quite a big big dome, really, because it's a 3.6-metre telescope. But it's got sort of the whole dome rotates when, when the, with the telescope. So the telescope's sort of fixed inside the dome and the whole thing spins round. And you've got a sort of a shutter that opens and lets the air blow through across the whole telescope and out the back end, so it sort of opens up all the way through. It's got little fans that blow air across the mirror to try and get smoother flow across the mirror to put down the seam problems. And it's got uh, adaptive optics in the sense that there's, there's like actuators, little rods effectively that push against the back of the mirror and, and adjust its shape to, to improve the, the image quality. Right,
2: so is it quite disconcerting with it rotating around during the night?
5: Ah, well, this is the clever thing you see, because actually... You don't sit in a control room in the telescope dome at all. You sit in another, another building about 200 yards away. It's called the Ritz, which I think is an astronomer's joke. <laughs> it stands for Remote Instrument Telescope Control, except I think controls has been spelled with a Z for some reason. But, uh, yeah, so, it's, so you don't actually you don't sit with the telescope at all, in fact. So if you, want, if you want to go and see what your telescope is doing while you're controlling it, you have to stick your coat on, go outside, and have a wander up the road 200 yards and, and see what's happening. So
2: are you sat in the control room now?
5: No, I'm actually sat in my uh, well, effectively a hotel room, so a room in the in the sort of residential that the astronomers sleep in. So in fact, it's uh, I've only just got up because I had we had our first nights observing last night. It's sort of late afternoon here, so I've been in bed all day really because we, we had a, a fairly successful night observing and uh, we're up, I was up till about 8:30 a.m. local time, so I've managed to get about seven hours sleep and getting ready for the next night's observing in a, in a few hours' time.
0: Tim, why are you there at the NTT? What are you observing?
5: It's a programme to look at um, planetary nebulae. So these are these um, the endpoints of uh, stars like the Sun. So it's what the Sun will become in about, in about 5 billion years or so. So when they expand to become a red giant, they lose all their outer layers, drift off into space. The, the core of the star is revealed where all the nuclear reactions used to take place. You've got this sort of hot, dead star we call a white dwarf. About the size of the Earth, mm-hmm. that's so hot it illuminates all the stuff around it. So that, mm-hmm. that nebula glows, and that's what we call a planetary nebula. Right. And the programme is actually to uh, to look at the the structures of planetary nebula. I don't know whether you've seen any of these pretty HST images of planetary nebulae. Yes, they're very pretty indeed. So the, the reason why there are those strange structures isn't still isn't understood, actually. And one of the suggestions has been that it's because um, the, the star that sort of lost all the stuff is actually part of the binary system. And, and the companion, as it orbits around, helps to sort of sculpt um, the, the outflowing material into these weird shapes. So what we've done is we've sort of made a sample of those planetary nebulae which are known to have binary central stars. So, so at least you know there's a binary system, because for a lot of them you don't. Um, and then what we're doing is we're investigating the structures of the nebulae by using... Uh, a combination of imaging, so taking photographs basically with a, with a CCD camera, and spectroscopy, so putting a, a slit of a spectrograph across the nebula, spreading the light into a spectrum, and looking at the using basically Doppler shifts of the emission lines, the emission from the from the nebula, to work out what speed everything's moving at, and try and get an idea of the, the sort of three dimensional structure of the nebula.
0: Very exciting. And how long are you there for?
5: Um, well, we we had we, we've got three nights on the telescope, so it was our first night last night. Uh, another two nights to go, and of course, what you've got to add on at the beginning and the end of that is time to get from Manchester to the La Silla, which is where I am, um, yep. the observatory in in, in Chile. Um, so, and, and basically, you've got to have a few days before you start observing to acclimatise and to, you know, iron out any problems you might have with planning your observations with your support astronomer and so on. So, basically, I, I think I have left Manchester on Tuesday, and I'm getting back on the following. Uh, Thursday, so that's sort of you know uh, nine nine or ten days later.
2: Did you manage to acclimatise quite easily?
5: Um, well, it's funny, you know. I mean, it's a bizarre thing, of course, because we're, we're sort of five hours behind uh, British summertime at the moment. So there's obviously some sort of uh, time lag there. Then there's all the travelling that you've got to put up with, of course. It's quite tiring. It's a 14-hour flight from Paris to Santiago in one step, which I was a bit worried that that was actually farther than the amount of fuel on the plane would cope with. But apparently, we got there oh, okay. Um, it's about as far as a plane can fly, I think. So there's that to cope with. But then, of course, you end up uh, trying to be up all night here anyway. So, you know, it's, it's all very strange. And I think when you've got nothing to do before your observations start, then... Uh, then it is quite difficult but actually last night it was easy because you know you're sort of busy all night and it keeps the adrenaline flowing and, and you and, and you know you can cope with it okay it's basically one of the problems with it of course we're at reasonable altitude it's about, I think it's about 2400 meters here um, which you know when you're walking around and stuff isn't a problem you don't really notice it but if you run which I just did um, then uh, all of a sudden it sort of hits you because I guess you're not getting, really getting enough oxygen in your blood and so you can cope with it for a, a few minutes and then all of a sudden, wham, there's no oxygen and you almost fall over. But you've got to be a bit careful not to overexert yourself, basically. You, start, you, you feel your heart start pounding if you, if you start walking too fast, basically. Maybe it's just me, maybe I'm just my fit.
1: <laughs> the views must be amazing. What, what's the observatory actually like? What's it like up on the mountains?
5: Um, well, it's quite—it's uh, an interesting place, actually. There's more telescopes on this mountain than I've seen in any observatory in my life before. Um, of course, I've not been out that much in my life, but uh, you know, it's—it's it's, it's, uh, there's quite there's must be about fifteen or so telescopes, I think, packed together on a little mountain in the middle of Chile. It's actually really spectacular, to be honest. It's a sort of a two-hour drive from La Serena um, up into the Andes, um, and uh, it's a place called La Silla, which means the chair, I think, in Spanish. It's an ESO observatory. That's the European Southern Observatory, and the the major instruments, basically a big three point six meter telescope called the three point six meter. And there's also the uh, the the NTT, the one we are using, which is also a three point six meter. And then there's another two point two meter. But on on the telescope on the on the mountain itself, there's a there's a load of other smaller telescopes, sort of between about 0.5 meters and and sort of one point five meters which actually is it's a bit sad, really, because it's a sort of graveyard of telescopes because most of the smaller ones just aren't um, operational anymore because as we've sort of moved on to build bigger and bigger ones, um, there's only a certain amount of money to, to operate, them, you say. So, so you know, ESO has this other observatory north of here at Paranal.
2: Is that where the very large telescope is?
5: Yeah, that's right. There's the, the four 8-metre telescopes there. So you can imagine there's a lot of effort gone into uh, running that new you know, relatively new observatory. So I suppose it's a, it's a bit sad, really. I mean, there's telescopes here that you know might be nice to use, but I guess someone's got to pay for that to happen somewhere along the line. Anyway, but it's a beautiful place. I mean, it's sort of, you know, we've uh, we've, you know, sunsets gorgeous Sun- sunset across the western slopes of the Andes and the Pacific Ocean. Uh, can you imagine it? It's been and the yeah. weather's been pretty good. It's uh, it's it's sort of uh, it's blue skies during the day. And The only thing that's been an issue actually is the wind is the wind the wind's got up a bit there's obviously wind limits on using the telescopes because the sort of wind blows into the dome and shakes the telescope about and stuff so uh, so last night the wind had got up about about midnight um just above the wind limit, which is about fifteen meters per second and uh, and so we had to sort of shut down for an hour, which gave us a chance to go and have our midnight snack, which was lucky um, and then after about an hour, we could switch back on again and we were, we were off observing again so hopefully as long as the wind down we'll be we'll be up for another whole night of observing the wonders of planet
2: so tim you've taken lots of great pictures from the sounds of things
5: yeah it's very it's very pretty scenery i, I think we've uh, stuck uh we'll stick a few of them on the on the jodcast website so people can have a have a look and see what this place is like
1: well the very best of luck with the weather now we've often said that we listen to all of our listener feedback one of those that's been in touch with us is Joe Jones, who recently wrote to recommend NASA's Skywatch website. Now, it's a great website that gives you details of where and when to see the International Space Station passing overhead. The website is at spaceflight forward slash real data forward slash sightings. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, we thought we would take this one step further and give you our recommendations for some of the best astronomy websites on the interweb. Now besides NASA's Skywatch, one of the other very good websites for finding out about the International Space Station is called HeavensAbove.com. that's heavens-above.com. In that you can type in where you live and find out if the International Space Station or iridium flares, or indeed any other satellites are going over your house anytime soon, within the next 10 days. Just got a question for you guys. I mean, when you talk about iridium flares, what is that? Well,
2: iridium is after the iridium network of satellites, which were, I think, launched by Motorola um, to provide satellite telephone services. And the solar panels will catch the sunlight and reflect the sunlight down to the Earth. If you're on the ground, what this looks like is a sudden brightening in the sky and then a dimming. Yes, another interesting thing to take a look at in the night sky. It is. It's great, actually. You can amaze your friends and family.
0: Predicting where a flash of light is going to occur.
2: Exactly, yeah. It's great. Oh, good fun. It's like magic. All right.
0: And um, from this website that uh, Dave's mentioned, heavensabove.com, it will tell you uh, when you can
1: see these. Absolutely. All you need to do is type in where you live, and it'll bring up for you a list of the satellites and the space station, anything like that, that will be going over your house within the next 10 days. One of the things it will do is it will give you an altitude in degrees on the sky, which isn't particularly helpful for you unless you have some way of measuring this. And here's a nice little rule of thumb for you. If you hold out your fist at arm's length, then that is about 10 degrees on the sky. Ah, handy. Just a little That's... planetarium trick for
0: you there. <laughs> Sorry, that actually, well. that actually wasn't intended, that pun, but uh, so apologies to you and everyone for that. <laughs> I've got one, and this is almost required viewing for any serious astronomer out there, the SOHO webpage. SOHO is a uh, satellite whose purpose in life is to observe the sun very, very closely and produces spectacular images, which you can find on the SOHO website, which is SOHO, www, as one word, so S-O-H-O-W-W-W dot, n a s c o m dot nasa dot gov, and the images of the sun are absolutely spectacular. As I say, the SOHO satellite takes images in different wavelengths, ultraviolet wavelengths usually, showing different parts of the sun at different temperatures. The detail is absolutely spectacular. Also, you can see sunspots, see how they move. There's movies on the web page showing the sun rotating. You could also see the solar corona. Using the images from the Lasco instrument, which is the Large Angle Spectrometric Coronagraph. And this is actually wonderful to watch because you see the solar wind, you see the solar corona blowing material off the surface of the sun. And occasionally you might be lucky enough to see a coronal mass ejection, a huge explosion of material off the surface of the sun. The movies from the Lasco instrument are just spectacular. So that's one which I absolutely love taking a look at so i recommend it to everybody go to the soho put soho into google or
1: something like that or follow the uh, link i mentioned above but don't worry if you don't have a pen and paper handy the only website address you need is www.jodcast.net because all of those addresses are in the show notes related to
0: the activity of the sun which is monitored by the soho satellite you can also check
2: out another website. Stuart, tell us about it. Yeah, it's spaceweather.com. That's www.spaceweather.com. That takes the Soho images, it displays those, it displays data from other instruments. It tells you about Aurora, gives you warnings whether you should go outside in the, in the evening or the night to have a look for Aurora, the northern or southern lights in the sky, which is a very useful service. So basically, if you want to want to see Aurora and you want to know what's happening with the Sun and its interaction with the Earth, go to spaceweather.com and it gives you all the latest up-to-date
1: information. Sounds yeah. good. Of course, for all of us amateur astronomers out here, the main interaction we want the Sun to have with the Earth is to set so that we can see the May night sky. And if you want to know what to look out for, well, here's our guide. It's Ian Morrison.
6: Hello. Well, let's begin this... Uh night sky section of the Jodcast by having a look at the stars that we can see in the evening. One problem, of course, is as we come to these lovely long summer days, there's less and less time to observe the night sky. And in fact, from around the middle of May in northern England, where I'm sitting now, it never gets truly dark for uh, about six weeks. As the sun sets below the horizon, In the southwest, we see the constellation of Gemini, the Heavenly Twins. And high in the south is the constellation of Leo the Lion. Between them is a very faint constellation, Cancer. But with binoculars, you may well see a very nice star cluster called the Beehive Cluster. Just on the boundary between Cancer and Leo is an interloper. It's the planet Saturn, and we'll come back to that later on. Low to the left of Leo, perhaps following down his tail, we come to the constellation of Virgo, with its bright star Spica rising in the southeast. In between Spica, and particularly towards the tail of Leo, is an area of the sky we call the realm of the galaxies, because here with a reasonable sized telescope one can pick up hundreds of galaxies they form part of what is called the virgo cluster and it itself is the center of the virgo supercluster of which our local group which has our milky way and the andromeda galaxies as their major as its major component is an outlying member so looking towards virgo we're looking to a region where the sky is filled with galaxies. Sadly, you need a telescope to see them. If we look high overhead this month, we see Ursa Major, the great bear. But the part that's most obvious, and many people call it a constellation in its own right, which it isn't, is what we call the plough and what the Americans call the Big Dipper, after the ladle used by the farmhouse ladies as the workmen came in for lunch. If you look at the central star of the tail of the bear, you may, if your sight is reasonable, see there's a companion. Mizar is the bright star that's fairly obvious, and the fainter star nearby is called Alcor, and together they're the horse and rider. You may well spot that with your unaided eye, but a pair of binoculars will make it very obvious. If, however, you then actually use a small telescope, you see that Mizar is itself a double star. And in the field of view, there's actually a relatively faint red star. It has an interesting name. It's called Sidus Ludovicianum. It was actually named after Ernst Ludwig V by a not-very-good observer who mistook it for a planet. But Alcor, the double Mizar... And Cidus, Ludo-Vicarium make a very nice little field of view for a small telescope. So now let's move on to the planets. I've already mentioned Saturn. It's in the constellation of Lero, very close to the boundary with Cancer, about 11 degrees to the right of the brightest star of Leo, which is called Regulus. Its magnitude is about plus 0.4, so it's still pretty bright. Though as it's getting further away from us, it's now in fact reducing. It'll be about plus 0.5 by the end of May. And the globe subtends an angle of about 18 arc seconds. Still quite a bit of detail to see if there's a, a night sky with good seeing if you have a small telescope. The rings are closing. They're about 13 degrees from edge on, so Saturn's actually shining less brightly than it was a few years ago, and that will continue to reduce for a few more years. If you do have a small telescope, you'll easily see Saturn's largest moon, which is called Titan. Now, Mercury is not a planet we often see. It's very close to the sun. It's often lost in the glare of the sun. But at the end of this month, about the last week or so, it actually has one of the best apparitions, as they're called, this year, when it rises up in the sky and can be seen about 30 minutes after sunset between where the sun has set and the very bright planet Venus, which we shall come to. What you need to do to see it is to get a location with a very good low western horizon, be there before sunset and see where the sun actually sets. Then look up to the left of that position, and as the brightness of the sky gradually falls, you should begin to see Mercury. A pair of binoculars will certainly help. Mars, I'm afraid, doesn't have a good month. It's barely visible just before dawn, close to the southeastern horizon, passing from Aquarius into Pisces. With a disk just over five arc seconds across, there are no details to be seen, even though it's at magnitude one. We're going to have to wait a few more months before we see it well towards the latter part of this year. On the other hand, no one can have failed to spot the planet Venus in the last few weeks. It's dominating the western sky after sunset. And it's rising to one of the highest elevations above the horizon that we ever see. The highest is about the very end of May. The magnitude's about minus four. It's interesting because it stays at about minus four for quite a long time, even though the amount of the disk that is in fact lit by the sun is actually reducing. Because as it gets nearer, the apparent size of the area of Venus that we see stays about constant. So although less of the disk is illuminated, it becomes a crescent. That crescent is much larger because Venus is coming towards us. It's the fact that Galileo Galilei was able to observe an almost full phase of Venus that proved that Venus must in fact orbit the sun and not orbit the earth. I usually finish this little section of the Jodcast with some highlights of the month. I can't claim there's anything particularly special this month On the 19th of May, a thin crescent moon with about 13% of the surface illuminated is just three degrees away from the planet Venus. They're both lying in the constellation of Gemini, the heavenly twins. That will make a very nice pairing and well worth looking out for just with your eyes or even better with a pair of binoculars. The moon... Many astronomers regard as a nuisance because when it's bright, the sky is never dark and you can't see these lovely faint fuzzies, as we call them, distant galaxies. But on the other hand, it's quite a nice thing to observe itself. And it's best to observe around first or last quarter, when about half of the moon is illuminated. And along the Terminator, the craters show up with very great detail. The shadows are long and it really looks very lovely. So you might try and have a look at the Moon around the 23rd of May, which is first quarter. And a small telescope will show you an amazing amount of detail. Well, it's a lovely spring day here at Jodrell Bank and you might have heard our mower mowing the grass outside. We need a big red light to perhaps say recording in progress. But just to finish off, I've said quite often it's never been a better time to be an amateur astronomer. Really good telescopes can be bought for surprisingly little. Uh, in the UK, there's a Skywatcher at 1.30pm, a five-inch paraboloid Newtonian telescope, which is motorized, so that once you've actually got it observing an object, it will track it across the sky. And that can be got for under 200 pounds. So in the many magazines, the Sky at Night magazine, Astronomy Now, we have available in the UK, have a look at the adverts, and uh, have a go at making some observations yourself. Good hunting.
1: Thanks, Ian. And that brings this issue of the Jodcast, I'm afraid, to an end. We'll have our May Extra show in the middle of the month and that's where you can hear Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien answering your questions and the rest of Dr. Carol Mundell's interview on active galactic nuclei. Thanks to Steve Anderson for providing us with the voice of the intro and also to Tom Muxlow, Ian Manfield, Eric Wilcox and Megan Argo for providing us with the voices of the outro.
2: And to you as well, Dave.
1: Oh, thank you, Stuart. Yes, thanks, as the voice of the computer.
2: And Dave, we'd also like to say thanks to the Institute of Physics and the Science and Technology Facilities Council, the funding council previously known as PPARC. Oh, yes, for their generous support. There's also another person to thank, and that's Brian Cox, particle physicist extraordinaire and creator of the Large Hadron Collider podcast. We're very grateful to him for recording
1: the clip of John Barrowman. And of course, no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Torchwood, which of course remains the property of BBC Wales. So now I just need to thank Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Nicholas Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe and Megan Argo, and you for downloading us. And until next time from this Intercontinental Jodcast, goodbye.
0: Bye everyone. Bye. Bye. Coming next month on the
1: Jotcast. Warning. Containment field deactivated. Warning. Sir, we have a situation. Deactivated. They're out.
4: Greetings, gentle wanderers across the galaxy and space hoppers. Welcome to Chodra Bank, the center. about 10
2: minutes'
1: time, we shall be. Oh my gosh, one minute, one minute. There's, there's, there's something coming
6: toward me Oh no, oh no
0: ah! Cold red, cold red, ladder cold red Seal the parameters
6: National Facility Holding Area. It was meant to be secure. Sir, the theater is broken through the main gate. Computer recognises
1: security override clearance Jodcast H-Alpha.